I'm Kate Mara, and you're listening to the Audible Original American Football, presented by Michael Strahan and narrated by me. Sure, we all have our favorite teams and chase the excitement all season, but just how did football get its start, then explode in popularity? I'm taking you through the fast-paced tale of American football, its central figures, and how, rife with class conflict, football transitions from an amateur sport to one of the most prolific and valuable leagues in the world. The dramatic history is bloodier, dirtier, and more tumultuous than you know. Listen to American football and other great storytelling at audible.com or wherever you get your podcasts. American Football is an Audible original produced by The History Channel, Misher Films, and Smack Entertainment. I owe my life to the game of football. While the personal triumphs and successes I experienced during my playing days are some of the most rewarding moments, I've been very fortunate to have an equally, if not more, successful career since retiring. And make no mistake, that too is because of football. Without football, there is no me on your television screen waking you up in the morning. No sports analysis on Fox Sports. No $100,000 pyramid. Today, it is a foregone conclusion that athletes attach themselves to opportunities outside of the game, but there was a time when this was not a practice at all. It was actually frowned upon. This was the system. You didn't deviate from the system. Then somebody did. He would not only deviate from it, he would upend it by bucking every tradition that existed and creating a blueprint for the modern-day athlete as a multi-hyphenate, or to quote Jay-Z, not a businessman, but a businessman. His real name was Harold. You'll come to know him as Red. I'm Michael Strahan, and this is American Football Chapter 7, The Iceman Coming. Hello, I'm Gus Johnson, and welcome to Champaign, Illinois' newly dedicated Memorial Stadium. It's a warm and beautiful October afternoon here where a sold-out crowd of 67,000 is easily the largest ever on hand for a sporting event in state history. If you live within 300 miles, you begged, borrowed, or stolen to get here. The Illini face their arch rivals, the University of Michigan, Both teams are undefeated this season, but Michigan has not lost in its last 20 outings. The Fighting Illini are certainly up against it today, but with the Wheaton Iceman on their side, they know anything is possible. You would think the Wheaton Iceman got his very cool nickname from being calm under pressure. But the truth is way more literal. He grew up in Wheaton, Illinois, And every summer, he used to deliver 75-pound blocks of ice on his shoulders to people around town. With that said, Harold Red Grange, a college junior and halfback for the University of Illinois, did have ice water in his veins when he stepped out on that football field. He was already the most famous college player in history, but he was on his way to being so much more. Michigan will kick it off, and we're finally underway. Red Grange fields the ball for the Illini at his own five. Slices across the field, picking up blockers before turning up field. 
Wow! Look at him go. Grange in for the score. 95 yards. Incredible. Five minutes later. Red Grange. It appears to go around the entire Michigan team before arcing into the far corner of the end zone for his second score of the day. 67 more yards on one run. Cold-blooded. And a few minutes later. Illinois with the ball at their own 44. The Illinois flash slices through Michigan's line like a hot knife through butter. No one's gonna catch him. Is this even happening? And then. Illinois just across midfield. Great, he explodes through a crease in the line and dances around the secondary for his fourth score of the quarter. The crowd is going wild. <laughs> They've never seen anything like it and neither have I. Four touchdowns, 262 yards rushing by one player in 12 minutes. This is history in the making, folks. History in the making. On October 18, 1924, 21-year-old Red Grange laid waste to the Michigan Wolverines, recalibrating what was possible on the field and earning a chance to write his own ticket like no one ever had before or since. Despite sitting out much of the second quarter, he ended the day with 402 yards rushing, five touchdowns, and he passed for another. Overnight, Grange was a cross-country sensation, Handsome, God-fearing, and humble, he embodied the all-American working-class hero made good. Chris Willis, the head archivist of NFL Films. Red Grange grew up as almost a, a tragedy <laughs> and a hard-working childhood. His mother passed away right before his sixth birthday. The dad moves the family to Wheaton, Illinois. His father becomes the police chief there. He's on call, you know, almost 24 hours. So him and his younger brother sort of raised themselves. Red, named for his auburn hair, never quite found his footing in school. But he loved sports, which gave him the chance to do his talking on the field instead of off it. Red's exploits in college were so exceptional they attracted not only fans, but media attention as well. The Roaring Twenties is it was an ideal time for mass media. And sports, that's why they call it the golden age. You know, you had all these great athletes, whether it's Babe Ruth in baseball, Bobby Jones in golf, Jack Dempsey in boxing. When Grange came on the scene, it was everywhere. Every paper, every publication, and every newsreel uh, wanted to cover him. Aaron Rodgers. There were some dominant players who just didn't really have equals for a while. Red Grange, he's the best athlete on the entire field and nobody can stop him. In movie palaces that played newsreels, the speed of the projected image made Red look even faster and more impossibly athletic than he was, stoking the fire of his legend. Here's sports journalist and author, Jim Riesler. Sports writers had been around for years, but it was the age of great, famous columnists, Grantland Rice, Damon Runyon, they all wrote about Grange, and it was sort of an age where the sports columnist was a big deal. Warren Brown had coined the name the Sultan of Swat for George Herman Ruth, and Brown went on to give Grange his most enduring nickname, the Galloping Ghost. Damon Runyon wrote, He is Jack Dempsey, Babe Ruth, Al Jolson, Pavonermi, and Manowar, 
put them all together, they spell Grange. Here's legendary running back Barry Sanders. Even now, we're still talking about Red Grange, you know, so just shows you how, how great he was. And he was a highly sought-after commodity coming out of college, obviously. I mean, they would pack stadiums, man. He was exactly what the struggling NFL, Joe Carr, George Hallis, and Tim Mara, my great-grandfather, needed to turn things around fast. Going into his senior year in 1925, Grange was hounded with questions about what he would do after college. But the more the public clamored for a piece of Grange, the more the shy and unassuming Red tried to withdraw. Grange would hide out in a new, ornate, local movie palace. One afternoon, he got a showing of The Freshman, a silent film comedy starring Harold Lloyd as the football team's water boy. The movie was intended to cash in on the college football craze that Grange and others were fueling in real life. After the show, Grange was approached by the theater's owner, an impeccably dressed and dashing man of 45, with a pencil-thin mustache, polished walking stick, and spats. He gave him a free lifetime pass to the theater, a gesture that Grange much appreciated. He asked, how would you like to make $100,000, maybe a million? Grange assumed he was joking. He was not. That man, Charles Cassius Pyle, known as Cece, had been many things in his life. A salesman, travel agent, actor, theater owner, and movie producer. But first and foremost, he was a promoter. Again, Jim Riesler. The sports writers quickly called him cash and carry for reasons uh, that have to do with uh, his character. He just had a personality that was completely outsized, always looking for the next big thing, wanted to be a big deal. Pyle had two great skills, making money and losing it. Depending on who you asked, CeCe Pyle was a wild-eyed dreamer and serial entrepreneur of unparalleled vision, or a scam artist and no-good snake oil salesman to be avoided at all costs. Still, one thing was certain. Pyle had the gift of gab. He could talk people into anything. Just ask any of his three former wives. Pyle was always looking for his chance to cash in on a sure thing. In Pyle's mind, that sure thing was Red Grange. What Grange had in raw athletic talent, he lacked in imagination, experience, and presentation, all of which were C.C. Pyle's strong suits. Grange didn't need to know that the beautiful theater in which they'd met was tied up in court, with the builder alleging that Pyle owed him more than half a million dollars in unpaid bills. When Grange starts getting more and more opportunities, before his senior year starts, he gets a little overwhelmed. He gets these opportunities of maybe doing movies, you know, getting paid to play pro football, you know, write stories. Grange doesn't really want to do anything that jeopardizes his eligibility, but he wants somebody to help guide him. Pyle had provided the same services for actors. Why couldn't he do it for athletes? Weren't modern sports just a giant form of entertainment? Weren't the two worlds on a collision course already? What Grange needed was someone to negotiate on his behalf, almost like an agent. Yes, a sports agent. Never mind the job did not exist until Pyle thought it up. But such was his genius, for better or worse. Here again, Jim Riesler. 
you think in, you know, sitting here in 2022, yeah, of course, that's what agents do. But back then, the idea of being a sports agent, it had never been done before. Pyle was decades and decades ahead of his time. What do I have to do? Asked Grange. Just tell me we have a deal and I'll handle everything else. The two men shook hands, Pyle telling Grange to keep their agreement a secret for now. Whether it would be the best deal Grange ever made, or a deal with the devil, remained to be seen. Here's general counsel and co-head of football at Rock Nation Sports, Kim Mayali. That sort of caricature of the, the slick, fast-talking agent is kind of going by the wayside. Obviously, the, the main function is to represent the player and negotiating contract with a football club. Also playing a role in public relations for the players. And then similar to that with off-the-field pursuits, getting marketing deals, working on those contracts. Grange's play in his senior year only served to ratchet up the frenzy around him turning pro. Here again, Jim Riesler. He appeared on the cover of Time magazine that fall. I mean, it, it was huge. Pyle had the foresight to see Grange as his ticket to the big time. And Grange saw Pyle kind of as a guide and admired Pyle. Editorials railed against the possibility that Red would diminish his legacy by going pro, a position shared by Grange's coach and near-father figure, Illinois head coach Bob Zupke who dismissed the pro game as the domain of scam artists and profiteers. CeCe Pyle countered, there isn't enough money in the world to induce me to turn amateur. Pyle knew that in order to maximize Grange's exposure as a pro, he would have to play in one of the biggest markets. New York offered promise, but the Giants had just gotten up and running and had yet to prove themselves as winners. The Bears, however had won championships and helped define the early NFL. Plus, Chicago was the big city if you grew up in Wheaton, Illinois. Chris Willis. House wanted him desperately. He writes in his autobiography of going to an Illinois-Iowa game in the rain and watching Grange play and just being impressed. He was like, I need to get this guy. So Pyle secretly reached out to Hallis with an offer that sounded a lot like a threat. We can either meet tomorrow or I'll be meeting with Tim Mara in New York the day after. Hallis took the meeting. With Grange, Pyle said, the NFL would have its first must-see man, even bigger than Thorpe or Pollard. The Bears could add more games to their season, then go on a barnstorming tour of the South and West. Pyle would arrange the whole tour. They'd show off Red Grange, the Chicago Bears, and pro football to a national audience, adding cash to their pockets all along the way. Hallis wouldn't have dared think of such a sweeping enterprise. But with Grange, he could. They got down to numbers. And as Hallis would quickly learn, the moon and the stars were just a starting point as far as CeCe Pyle was concerned. Pyle proposed to Hallis that they split the Bears' revenue, two-thirds to one-third. Hallis figured he'd make quick work of this small-time theater owner until he realized Pyle meant to keep two-thirds of the Bears' revenue for himself and Grange. The friendly mood turned sour in an instant. Jack Silverstein is a Chicago sports historian. In his autobiography, Hallis says, After 26 hours, we did come to an agreement. We would split the earnings 50-50. I would provide the Bears and pay the tour costs. 
pile would provide red, red would provide the crowds. It was a fair arrangement. Hallis knew he had a golden goose in his hands, and he wasn't about to let go. The last clause stated, if any of us were asked about a contract, we would declare none existed. Not only was George Hallis okay with breaking a rule or two in order to win, but George Hallis was okay with breaking rules that he enforced on others, or breaking rules that he himself had helped write. Redgrange was not supposed to be in the NFL in 1925, coming out of college. Jim Riesler. There was a feeling that these young men are getting an education, and it, you, you can't approach them before their education is up, but there's George Hallis and there's C.C. Pyle sort of working in concert, knowing exactly what they were doing. Former safety, Malcolm Jenkins. With the new NIL deals, players are becoming more savvy and understanding you know, their name and image and likeness and how to monetize that well before they come into the league. There's a lot of things that I think agents are good for, but it's just understanding what their job actually is, when you need one and when you don't, is, is always the, the trick. This is Les Sneed, general manager of the Los Angeles Rams. I look at college as where you're identifying young men, women, in some cases, t- to help develop them, help mentor them, help mold them into, into becoming. I do think that players have earned the right to collect some of the profits and not just the schools themselves. NFL President Joe Carr, anxious to quell critics who alleged a deal was in place, issued a press release on November 18th. Carr insisted that the league's stance on recruiting college players had not changed and swore that no one in the league had approached Grange. President Joe Carr knew that the rule was you couldn't sign a player that was still in college. And He wasn't going to veer from that. But he also knew that getting Red Grange to play in the NFL was a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So if he leaves college and drops out, he is free to sign. Red was heading to Joe's hometown for his final game against Ohio State. 10,000 people met his train at the station just to get a glimpse of the handsome star. Another 85,000 were jam-packed into the stadium. Joe Carr had plans to attend the game to see Grange play and get ahead of any deal-making he needed to know about. But before Carr could make the trip, he suffered a ruptured appendix and was rushed to the hospital. As Carr fought for his life, the rest of the league would be left to fight for Red Grange without Carr there to referee. In that last college game on November 21st, 1925, Grange was Grange, sealing a 14-9 win with a last-second interception, ending his legendary college career on a high note. As the game clock wound down, the anticipation for Grange's post-game announcement reached a fever pitch. Shortly after the final gun, he read a prepared statement. Grange was going pro, he said, but he was vague even deceptive, about his specific plans. Standing beside him at the press conference was Coach Bob Zupke, growing more and more upset as he took in Red's news. When Red finishes college career, he sort of gets kidnapped by his college coach, Bob Zupke, and he puts him in a taxi, and he just says, just drive. And Zupke gives you a spiel of, don't turn pro. But Grange wanted to play pro football to maximize his talent and make some money. And he just 
told Zupke, you get paid for coaching, why can't I get paid for playing? And that was it. A few hours later, you know, uh, Grange is on a train to Chicago to sign with the Bears the next day. Here is Washington Post journalist Sally Jenkins. Red Grange immediately going pro out of college was a, an electrifying event. People frowned on professionalism. Jim Thorpe is disgraced for having taken money to play a little summer baseball. People played professional sports under assumed names because nice college boys from the Ivy Leagues didn't, you know, wouldn't want to be caught taking money to actually compete. You know, it was considered sort of dirty. And Red Grange kind of changes that because he's so popular and he's so famous and he's so talented. Jim Riesler. Red Grange was one of the heroes of the age, and he was really the first guy to get a salary, a deal that was out of this world big. Kim Mayali. That's why the players play the game. They obviously have a love for the game, but the goal is to also set themselves up in their families, um, you know, after sacrificing so much um, and to get them what they deserve from a contract standpoint is very rewarding. When you think about athletes' careers, it's like the old uh, acronym what does NFL stand for? Not for long. You have a chance to make a lot of money, uh, have a very public life, make a lot from endorsements, but your career could end Sunday. Several NFL owners descended on Chicago that night, including Tim Mara of the Giants, futilely hoping to scoop up the galloping ghost. As the Chicago Bears played the rival Green Bay Packers, there was Red Grange, watching the game on the sidelines from behind a police escort as fans fought to get on the field to see him. The dance was over before it began. Red Grange was officially a Bear. His first game would be against the Bears' crosstown rivals, the Chicago Cardinals, on Thanksgiving, just four days away. For his part, Red was concerned with how hard and even dirty players were hitting on that field. Here is Chicago Bears legend and Hall of Famer, Mike Singletary. I was always focused on just delivering a message that the running back really didn't forget. It will begin to erode the confidence that they came in with. As for the Giants, Tim Mara, never one to take no for an answer, tried to salvage something from the trip. He met with Hallis and Pyle, pitching them on playing a game in New York in just 10 days' time. Pyle agreed, as long as Mara doubled the ticket prices for the game. Mara rebuffed him, refusing to jack up prices for his loyal Giants fans. Grange or no Grange. Mara immediately disliked Pyle's pomposity. But eventually, a deal was struck. Grange's baptismal game as a pro came against the Cardinals, led by Patty Driscoll. The game was held at the newly completed Wrigley Field before a sellout crowd of 41,000. The first 20,000 seats sold out in three hours. An additional 20,000 fans were turned away. It was a cold, muddy, and miserable day for football, but the crowd didn't mind, too excited to see the galloping ghost up close. Patty Driscoll's strategy was to punt away from Grange so he couldn't field the ball. Driscoll said he felt bad when the crowd started booing Grange in his opening game. But Driscoll's wife later explained they were actually booing Patty for not kicking Grange the ball. The game ended in a 0-0 tie, but it was perhaps the most successful 0-0 tie in NFL history. After all, they set a pro football attendance record, 
a cause for celebration all around. Grange collected $12,000 that he shared with Pyle, all for one day's work. Chris Willis. You could compare Red Grange to the Beatles when they go on tour. People wanted to go see him. Back then, you didn't get to see these big celebrities and these big sports stars unless they came to your town, and Red was the beneficiary of that era. Jack Silverstein. Think about that. He's in college on November 21st, 85,000 fans watching him play, second most ever in college football. The very next day, now he's a pro, but he's not playing yet. He's on the bench. They don't even hit 7,000. Then Grange debuts four days later at the same park, and the attendance, 36,000. That's why everybody wanted to have Red Grange. Every metric by which you would measure the success of the Red Grange show was that impressive. Again, Aaron Rodgers. You need the favorites. You need those star players that move the needle for any sport so that people would just tune in, whether you're a fan or not. Pro football suddenly had an attraction that sparked interest like never before. Games were scheduled with two guiding principles. How much money can we make? And how fast can we make it? Three days after ending the regular season, Pyle and Hallis lined up a 10-game stretch for the Bears, with eight of those games played in just 12 days. Ben Roethlisberger. I can't imagine playing back-to-back games or multiple games in a week or anything like that. One time, because of COVID, we had to play, I think, three games in 11 days or something like that. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And if you think it's hard for teams today, with a 53-man roster, to play a game on Sunday, then again on Thursday night, imagine this. The Bears only had 18 players on its roster, and most of them played both offense and defense. Here's Rob Gronkowski. I love playing both ways. I was actually all-state defensive end my senior year in high school, and I actually didn't get any awards for being a tight end. We probably had about 24 guys on our team, so we all played both ways. Uh, we loved it, but by the end of the game, I mean, everyone was smoked. A special custom train was outfitted to transport the Bears across the country, the team often arriving in their dirty uniforms from the day before. Ever the optimist, Pyle told Hallis not to worry. After this tour, he could afford to get every player two sets of uniforms. The question was whether there'd be any players left standing to put them on. The Bears won games in St. Louis and then Philly before heading that afternoon to New York City to take on the Giants the next day at the Polo Grounds. Hopes for the game were high for everyone, but none higher than Mara, who needed to reverse $40,000 in losses if his great franchise experiment was to continue another year. Troy Vincent, NFL vice president and former defensive back, describes the feeling of stepping onto the field before a big game. Nothing like coming out that tunnel and seeing 70, 80, 90,000 people. And you're representing your city. You're repping your city. Just a beautiful feeling, the roar of the crowd, the energy that's inside the stadiums. Yeah, because they're cheering for you. Nothing like it. Nothing like it. Grange had been a pro footballer for less than two weeks and yet was expected to step onto the country's biggest stage and perform like an old hand. But his body was bruised and battered from a full college season. And whether he could deliver for Chicago 
and frankly the League, was still an open question. That didn't stop half of New York from coming out to see the answer. For the first time, New York City was the center of the football universe. Big Apple icons Babe Ruth and Gene Tunney sat in attendance when Red walked out on the field surrounded by 50 police officers. He saw high society types packed shoulder to shoulder with the working class in the stands, all there to see him. Here's Joe Buck to paint a scene of that day. Welcome to the world-famous Polo Grounds here in Upper Manhattan, where from the size of this capacity crowd, you'd think the Yankees were playing in the World Series. In fact, if some kid had told me that 70,000 fans would come to see a professional football game here in New York, I'd have said, you're daft, punk. But that's just what's happening. Another 20,000 set up on Coogan's Bluff and the surrounding rooftops hoping for even a streaking glimpse of the Wheaton Iceman and the one and only Harold Red Grange. The Bears have an 8-2-3 and three season thus far, but the surprise story is the young New York football giants, who after a slow start have an 8-3 and three record themselves. The Bears amassed an early 12 points while Grange was pounded on every play, whether he had the ball or not. Again, Mike Singletary. Sometimes someone is good until you hit them in the mouth. All of a sudden, they don't bite. That's what I mean by, is the person really a great player? Are they going to keep coming after you hit them in the mouth? You know, when you get a player like that, that's, <laughs> that's greatness. Somehow, some way, he's going to get a pick. Somehow, some way, he's going to get 100 yards. You're not going to stop him. You may control him, but you're not going to stop him. In the second quarter, the Giants rebounded for a touchdown of their own. And by the third quarter, Red was parked on the sidelines to avoid further injury. It's still 12-7 as we head into the fourth quarter. But while New Yorkers want a hometown victory, at the moment they're chanting, We want Grange! We want Grange! And there he is, number 77, running out onto the field. Late in the fourth, the Bears still led by five but the Giants were moving quickly downfield. The Bears look tired, as well they should, as the Giants' offense comes to the line. The ball is snapped to McBride, who steps back to pass. He has a man open, but 77 flashes in front and snatches the ball from midair. Grange zigzag zooms downfield, bringing this massive crowd to its collective feet as he's in for the score. Wow, and in case you're at all confused, that's the sound of 70,000 Giants fans cheering for the star of the Chicago Bears. Coverage the next day was breathless. The New York Times wrote, Out of a little Midwestern town came a fiery-haired youth who took the big city by storm. Today, football became a game for all of America. But Pyle's master plan for his young charge extended beyond Grange's exploits on the field. That night after the Giants game, Pyle made sure Grange was featured on a New York radio station for a 10-minute talk that was broadcast across the Northeast, all carefully scripted by C.C. Pyle. Grange said, quote, I am convinced that football is the best game ever invented. It demands more from the player than any other game. Its rewards are spiritual rather than material. In addition to his spiritual rewards, Grange earned an estimated $30,000 for the game against the Giants, 40% of which went into Pyle's pocket. 
Here's Kim Mayali again. We um, are limited by the NFLPA in what we can commission. So the, the maximum amount that we can commission players is 3%. So very, very far cry from the 40% that CC Pyle got. I mean, it's great for the agent, very bad for Grange. I understand, you know, that he was helping to create legitimacy to a fledgling league. So I think perhaps it wasn't outrageous for, you know, if it was 1925. But today, no, it wouldn't fly. But that was just the tip of this iceberg. Pyle had arranged that Grange had the next day off, and the two men set up shop in New York's Astor Hotel. They landed $12,000 for a sweater endorsement, $10,000 for a doll, $5,000 for shoes, and even a cigarette, but not an endorsement of smoking, which Grange was against. Instead, he was paid $1,000 simply to say that his friend smoked. The biggest deal, however, was for a feature film, which the New York Times reported brought in $300,000. Only Babe Ruth had reached such heights of brand royalty by this point. What Pyle created for Grange laid the groundwork for future NFL stars like Eli Manning. Red Grange and, and other athletes kind of set the standard and showed that, hey, this can be successful. It can be beneficial to some of these products to get it out there and say you use it and to endorse those. Clearly in awe of his agent's ability to summon money out of thin air, Grange said that Pyle had more good ideas in a day than most people did in a lifetime. Things were working out for everyone, it seemed. As Hallis would write, the game against the Giants gave pro football the impetus that we were looking for ever since we started the league in 1920. Tim Mara also had cause to pop a champagne cork or two, as the Giants' single game against the Bears erased Mara's red ink for the year and put him $18,000 in the black. It was also further proof that the league's strategy to shift franchises to high-population urban areas was the way to go. If Jim Thorpe shone a light on football's bright path to success, Red Grange lit up the whole forest. He showed how the sport could include a larger commercial and entertainment complex that was yet to be explored. And though many might hate to admit it, it was CeCe Pyle who coaxed Grange to lift the league on his back like a block of ice and bring it to the threshold of success. Chris Willis. The one thing that the Barnstorming Tour should get credit for, you know, the Red Grain Chicago Bears Barnstorming Tour, is it put pro football and the NFL on the national map, especially in newspapers and media and in newsreels. It was the first time in pro football history and definitely in the NFL that the game was broadcast or shown to a national level. Former NFL legend Peyton Manning. Grange says when he was going to visit the president, Coolidge, he said, what do you do? And he said, I play for the Bears. And the president said, yeah, I never really liked the circus that much. So it, it tells you there wasn't uh, wide interest in uh, football back in those days, but guys like Grange helped football become what it is today. But the New York game was still just the start of Pyle's grueling national tour. Grange was injured early and had to sit out a game, infuriating fans. He often had to decide whether to play hurt or refund people's money. Players took the field in terrible shape, and once the team's trainer had to play half a game to be the team's 11th man. Jim Riesler. They played 19 games in 69 days. That's what, that's a game, uh, tw that's a game every three days? I mean, that, that's enough to kill people. 
A lot of players got hurt. They didn't have the kind of medical attention they get today. This is Dr. Chris Nowinski. I'm co-founder and CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation. I think people believed, based on faith, <laughs> that it was bad to get hit in the head 100 years ago, and that's why we always see these conversations popping up that we're still having today. It'd be the same message that we give athletes today. Get hit in the head fewer times and not as hard, and you'll be better off. And so if you were trying to give some medical advice to a football program, you would say eliminate tackling and, and blocking in practice, learn to teach football in a different way, and then provide care when you have concussions to let people rest and let their brains recover as long as possible. From the outside, it looked like the NFL was on its way to financial stability. But appearances can be deceiving. For those not on the Red Grange gravy train, times were especially tough. Teams desperate to schedule games with the Bears looked for any marketing hook they could find. Fritz Pollard managed to arrange a game against the Galloping Ghost, playing and coaching for the Providence Steamrollers that was billed as Pollard versus Grange. Jack Silverstein. The forgotten aspect of Fritz Pollard is that it was about race. He was the black star in a white league, and he wasn't the only black player and the black players who were in the league were excellent. Paul Robeson and Inky Williams and others who were all pros. But Fritz Pollard was the superstar who never was. Fritz Pollard in many ways could have had the impact that Red Grange had. But Pollard was merely hanging on at this point in his career. And the already road-weary bears were showing the effects of their unrelenting schedule. Grange had to let one punt sail over his head because he couldn't lift his arms to catch it. It was their seventh game in less than two weeks, and the Bears lost 9-6, to six, Grange's first loss as a professional. I was booed for the first time in my career, said Grange. A pro's performance is evaluated much more critically, and he's less likely to be forgiven when a mistake is made. Here is former Pittsburgh Steelers coach Bill Cower. At the professional level, um, the expectation that you have for some players is higher than you have for others. You're being held to a little bit of a higher standard than anybody else, and so uh, you have to accept that as a responsibility of being a professional athlete. Another former superstar was brought in to help boost the gate for a game against the newly formed Tampa Bay Cardinals. It was billed as Thorpe versus Grange, old versus new. It was hardly a fair fight. As Grange noted after the game, the once fabulous athlete fumbled several times and had a terrible time trying to move around with his old time speed. The torch had long ago been passed, but Thorpe, like Muhammad Ali and so many other greats who played past their prime, was still out there taking hits to his person and his legacy. Here's former NFL tight end Tony Gonzalez. I had been talking about retiring for three years <laughs> before I walked away. And I was ready to retire for those three years. But there's a couple things that, that kept making me come back. First and foremost, it was, it was the ring. I wanted a Super Bowl and I knew we had a chance. And the second was the money. <laughs> and I'll be honest about it. I was like, you gotta be stupid, Tony, to walk away at this point because they're paying you way more money than you ever made in your, your whole career. As the official NFL season drew to a close, 
Everyone was still scrambling for the paydays that Grange fever had pumped into the sport. In Chicago, the Cardinals tried to finagle another game against the Bears and Grange by turning to a familiar and now outlawed ploy, boosting their record to force the Bears to play them as the new league champs. But in the Cardinals' haste to scrounge up a few quick and easy wins, they ended up playing against the Milwaukee Badgers, who had already disbanded for the season and took a rather youthful approach to cobbling together a squad. They fielded local high school players. Whoops. Another team in the title hunt, the traveling Pottsville Maroons, tried to play an extra game against a collection of former Notre Dame All-Stars in Philly's Shibe Park. Unfortunately, that would have meant encroaching on the territory of the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets, who'd already planned to play a game there that day. When Joe Carr finally reemerged from his hospital bed, it was clear the inmates had taken over the asylum. While he appreciated the cash flowing into the NFL's coffers, he wasn't about to let the league slip into old bad habits. He immediately laid down the law, kicking the Milwaukee Badgers and the Pottsville Maroons out of the league and fining the Cardinals for playing against high schoolers, even though they were ultimately declared the NFL's 1925 champs. C.C. Pyle's relentless barnstorming tour finally wrapped on January 31, 1926, in Seattle, Washington, after a glamorous stop in Los Angeles, where Grange hobnobbed with movie stars and moguls before playing in front of 75,000 in the Coliseum against an all-star team fronted by fellow college star George Wildcat Wilson. All told... The team had traveled more than 15,000 miles from coast to coast in just over two months. 332,000 tickets were sold in total. Grange and Pyle were said to have made approximately $500,000 each over two months, or well over $8 million today. Jack Silverstein. Red came to the Bears famous. Ten weeks later, he was rich. Red Grange had a gift. He could play football. And he could play football at a time when this league needed someone who had that star power. Pyle had more than made good on his promise to Grange since their fateful meeting in Pyle's movie theater. The tour had also fueled a new love affair between the national media and America's rough-and-tumble game that previously could not get arrested on the sports pages. The NFL was living up to its name for the first time. It had taken the first steps to becoming a truly national football league. The National Football League. Red Grange saved the league. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine what the NFL would have looked like if Red Grange had not arrived. But for CeCe Pyle, the world alone was never enough. He'd nearly killed half of the Chicago Bears and run his own client into the ground. But Pyle was emboldened by his sweeping success. In January 1926, he approached George Hallis to talk about next year's deal. Don't worry, he said. I'm still happy with our 50-50 revenue split. The only thing I want now is to be an equal share owner of the Bears on top of that. Hallis wondered if he should get his hearing checked. That was a firm no. Not now, not ever. If they didn't check Pyle here, where would it end? 
Pyle set out to answer that rhetorical question a week later on February 6, 1926, at the NFL owners' meeting in Detroit. He brought his client, Red Grange, with him, and everyone fawned over the two conquering heroes. But the good mood didn't last long. Pyle had something to share with the 20-odd assembled owners. He told them he had secured a five-year lease on Yankee Stadium, and he wanted an NFL franchise in New York for Grange and himself to start the football Yankees. I have the biggest star in football, and I have a lease on the biggest stadium in the country, and I am going into your league. It was a bomb thrown in a car they were all riding in. For a moment, it looked like Tim Mara might punch Stacey Pyle in the face. By other accounts, the men did scuffle and had to be separated. Pyle shouted back, No blasted Irishman is going to keep me out of New York. Mara looked to the other owners for support, but they were more receptive to Pyle than one might expect. As long as Red Grange was in the NFL, that meant they could schedule games against him and reap the rewards. The fact that it would be in NYC all the better for their bottom lines. Besides, Chicago already had two NFL teams. What was the big problem having two teams in New York? It was an open secret how Mara and Pyle felt about each other, and their utter disdain was now hard for either man to contain. Pyle would be fielding an NFL team in New York over his dead body. All eyes then turned to NFL President Joe Carr. Grange was the moneymaker they needed right now. But Gentleman Joe knew it wasn't just about right now. What was the value of a franchise in a city if someone else could just come in and steal the audience another club had worked to cultivate? At least in Chicago, both teams had given their consent. Why would any new teams invest in the NFL if it couldn't control its own territories? Carr's answer to Pyle was no. And just like that, Pyle and Grange were out of the NFL. Jim Riesler. Why the NFL turned them down? I'm not really sure. Part of it was Tim Mara, who owned the Giants, said, no, wait a minute, this is my area, which I think is true. But the NFL loathing of Pyle went beyond that. I don't know if it was his personality. I don't know if it was his abrasiveness. It's hard to say. A season built of wild, profitable barnstorming was about to become a year of barn burning. Pyle, of course, was not out of ideas. Not now, not ever. What was his next move if he couldn't start his own team? Hell, why not start his own league? He would call it the American Football League, kicking off what would come to be called the Grange War. 